Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 52. Psalm 52. This is the word of the Lord. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray now that you would send the Holy Spirit, that we might receive the preached word into our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you look at the title of this psalm, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. This was a psalm that David wrote. In this particular instance, well, who is Doeg the Edomite, and what in the world did he do to prompt David to write the words of this psalm? At a first reading, this psalm just doesn't sound very nice. Doeg, you are boasting of evil, and you think that your words and your riches are going to save you, but I got news for you, Doeg. God is going to strike you down, and righteous people like me are going to laugh at you when it happens. Sounds pretty harsh and self-righteous, doesn't it? What would cause David to write something like this? When we go back and consider what Doeg did, it was actually very evil and depraved. In the book of 1 Samuel, during the reign of Saul, you remember David killed Goliath. That's in chapter 17. And after David killed the giant, David began gaining popularity throughout Israel. And King Saul did not like that David was gaining so much popularity, and Saul began to see David as a threat to his authority, a threat to his throne. So Saul began plotting to try and kill David. Well, David, in various ways, got wind that Saul was trying to kill him. So David took a little band of men with him, and he ran off into exile. And he was moving covertly from place to place in order to avoid detection by Saul. Now, when the story gets to 1 Samuel 21, David happens to come into a city called Nob, And at this time, uh, the priests of Israel were living at this town called Nob. And one of those priests, 
Ahimelech, who may very well have been high priest at this time. The text doesn't clearly say in 1 Samuel, but he may very well have been high priest at this time. And his family uh, was probably a very high standing in the priestly classes. This, this Ahimelech welcomed David and his band of soldiers, and he gave them, of all things, holy bread to eat. Normally, only priests would eat this holy bread, but because David and his men were famished and because there was no other bread handy, when they came to Nag, Ahimelech gave them the holy bread to eat. And you, I'm sure you remember Jesus referring to this story in his dispute with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. And now the text says in 1 Samuel 21 that on the day that David came to Ahimelech at Nob, Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen, was there, and he saw this whole exchange between David and Ahimelech. Then you jump over to chapter 22, and you, we get this picture, and it is Saul sitting under a tamarisk tree, whining and complaining that all of his servants are unfaithful because he can't catch David. It must not be his fault. It's his servant's fault that he can't catch David. And he's saying things like this. Nobody tells me when my own son makes a covenant with David. Nobody is sorry for me or tells me anything about David's whereabouts. You, you, all my loyal servants, you must really be on David's side. And he's throwing himself a pity party that he can't find David. And it's at this point that Doeg the Edomite pipes up. He, he sees an opportunity to gain favor with the king, and he says, Your Majesty, I saw David go to Ahimelech the priest, and I saw Ahimelech give David and his men holy bread to eat. And can you believe it, O king? Ahimelech even prayed for David. Doeg tattled on David and Ahimelech, and Saul says, Oh, really? Is that what happened at Nob? Let's just ask Ahimelech about this. So Saul summons Ahimelech, and he summons all of the priests from Nob, and he says, Ahimelech, why are you conspiring against me by helping David? And Ahimelech says, I'm not conspiring against you. David is the most loyal servant you have, so I'm going to continue to help him and pray for him because he is loyal to you. And Saul can't take that. David is his enemy. And so at that word from Ahimelech, Saul turns to his men and he says, kill all of these priests because they're on David's side. Now Saul's servants are Israelites. And they know how crazy this command that Saul has just given really is. They refuse to obey Saul's order because Saul has just ordered them to kill all the priests. I mean, these are not normal people in Israel. These are the representatives between God and man that Saul has ordered them to kill. And so these servants say, we're not putting our hands to the priests. So what does Saul do when they refuse? He thinks to himself, I'll get a non-Israelite to kill the priests. And he turns to who? Doeg the Edomite. And Saul says, you kill the priests. And Doeg the Edomite that day kills 85 priests. And if that wasn't enough, he also kills the women, the children, the babies, and the livestock in the city of Nob. 
That's what Doeg the Edomite did to prompt David to write this psalm. That's the context for this psalm. This psalm is the cry of the righteous heart calling out for God to do something about depraved people who seek to destroy the godly. And we see in this psalm that God's covenant, steadfast love, is a refuge for his people in the midst of their oppression. David's hope in the midst of oppression from the ungodly is God's steadfast love. God is for his people because his steadfast love endures forever. But we also see in this text that that same covenant love is terror and destruction for those who are not God's people. And their destruction is forever. God's steadfast love for his people is forever. And the destruction of the wicked is forever. This psalm divides itself into three sections for us. Verses 1 through 4, this is the boasting of the wicked. The boasting of the wicked. Verses 5 through 7 is God's destruction of the wicked. And then verses 8 and 9, the hope of the righteous. So let's look at these. Verses 1 through 4, the boasting of the wicked. Verse 1 really is a summary of this entire psalm. And it begins with a question addressed to wicked, powerful people who oppose God's people. Here's the question. Why do you boast of your wickedness? God's steadfast covenant love endures all the day. This psalm, though it though to our ears it might sound arrogant and self-righteous at first blush, it's actually a plea to the wicked to see the futility of what they're doing. Why in the world, by your wickedness, are you trying to fight against God and against his people? Don't you know that God's covenant love for his people endures all the day? Don't you know that God in his faithfulness is going to outlast all of your wickedness? It's an appeal to common sense, really. What do you think you're doing trying to fight against God himself? And then in verses 2 through 4, David gives us a description of the particular sin that the wicked are using to fight against God and his people. And it's this, evil speech. They are using their mouths, their tongues, and their words to plot destruction, to deceive, to cut down, to lie, to devour. Doeg used his words to tattle on David in an effort to kill him, and it was these sins of the tongue, a tongue reflecting a mind bent on evil, which led Doeg to commit horrible acts of murder. Jesus told us that out of the heart the mouth speaks, didn't he? And if there is a mouth that is speaking hatred and destruction against God's people, chances are good that physical violence against the righteous is not far behind. David portrays the wicked here as boasting in their hatred of God's people. I mean, what a thing to boast in, that that you hate God's people. The wicked are those who love to speak. Words that cut down righteous people. 
you can tell a lot about a person simply by listening to what they talk about, can't you? That's one reason why James would say that the tongue is a fire. It's a world of iniquity. The, the tongue is a fire because the tongue reflects what is going on inside of a person's heart. And the heart is desperately wicked. That's why no man can tame the tongue. Because no man can tame the sinful heart that fuels the tongue apart from God's grace. These verses, in the first place, are a warning to those among us who are prone to speak lots of evil words, speaking against our brothers and sisters behind their backs, trying to maneuver and plot against fellow believer in various ways, using our tongues to devour those who are loved by Jesus Christ. And James says, brothers and sisters, these things ought not be so. But when we look outside the church to the world, do we not see wicked tongues speaking out all the time against God's people? In our own context here in the U.S., we see powerful people speaking against us. Those who would call evil good. Those who try to thwart, to destroy, and to overthrow any sense of a transcendent moral law. And they would prefer to do whatever one feels like doing. But it's not just in our context that this is happening. We have many brothers and sisters in all parts of the world who are spoken and plotted against by powerful, wicked people. And often these evil words lead to murder of our brothers and our sisters. We should not be shocked by this. The Apostle Peter told us to not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon us. Nor should we become unrighteously angry. Rather, we should plead the common sense, plead to the common sense of the wicked, just as David does here. Why are you boasting of your evil? Don't you know that God is going to out-endure your wickedness? He's forever, you're not. Why do you, what do you think you're going to accomplish by speaking against, against God and trying to destroy his people? God's covenant love endures forever. Don't you know you're not really fighting against us, but you're really fighting against God himself? Which leads us to verses 5 through 7. God will destroy those who oppose his people. Look at the first line here in verse 5. But God will break you down forever. One of the ways that God expresses his eternal love for his people is by destroying their enemies eternally. Do you notice how verse 5 here reflects verse 1? In verse 1, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. It endures forever. So too, in verse 5, the destruction of the wicked endures forever. The wicked can only oppose God's people for a short while. But because God loves his people forever, the destruction of their enemies lasts forever. And the next two lines here in verse 5 give us a picture of what that forever destruction looks like. God will snatch the wicked from their tent. Doeg the Edomite thinks that he has a place to live hanging around in Saul's court. He thinks that he is secure hanging around with Saul. 
The wicked in general think that they are secure in their homes because they have made evil their refuge, but God will snatch them and tear them away from their dwelling places. They will be uprooted from the land of the living. They think that they are securely planted in their land, but God's going to pull them out of the land and throw them away forever. That's why you get to a passage like Revelation 6, and they're running away from the wrath of God, uprooted from their homes, saying, hide us. Fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. For the day of his wrath has come, and who can stand? How do the righteous react to that? Verses 6 and 7. These two verses are lines that are rather common in the Psalms, incidentally. These are two lines that Christians read and then wonder whether they're allowed to pray like this today. Surely the idea that the righteous are going to laugh and taunt the wicked at their downfall, surely that's not at all in line with the teaching of Jesus. Surely this is part of the Old Testament mindset that we no longer have now that Christ has come. What do we do with this? Let me suggest a few things. First, it is not merely in the Old Testament that rejoicing at the destruction of the wicked occurs. It shows up in the New Testament as well. In Revelation 19, when Babylon, the great prostitute, is judged, we hear the righteous crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. That's New Testament. This is not the cry of taunting, nor of self-righteousness. This is the cry of rejoicing that God's people have been vindicated and that their enemies have been destroyed forever. Second, notice the the line here, uh, the first line in verse 6. The righteous shall see and fear. When God destroys the wicked, the righteous don't engage in a taunting, self-righteous laughter. Rather, verse 6 shows a reverent rejoicing on the part of the righteous that God has acted to save his people. They're not laughing out of spite, but they're laughing as part of their rejoicing in God himself. But third, that the wicked will be rejoiced over for trusting in their own wickedness. That is exactly the message that the wicked need to hear. The wicked have puffed themselves up in rebellious pride against God and against his people. And the one thing that a person full of prideful wickedness cannot stand is being laughed at. It may very well be that what the psalmist is describing here is actually the perception of the wicked. While the righteous are reverently rejoicing in God that he has vindicated his people, that their enemies have been destroyed, the wicked in their pride and in their spiritual blindness, they still can't perceive that rejoicing as anything other than a taunting. Everything's still about them. So while the righteous are not actually taunting them, That's how the wicked perceive it. When seen like this, verses 5 through 7 are almost a plea for repentance. 
by the righteous. God is going to break you down forever. Why trust in your wickedness? Why do you seek refuge in your own destruction? Don't you know that the people you are trying to destroy are the very people who are going to rejoice at your destruction? Why are you fighting against God? But, but this is a plea for repentance that falls on deaf ears, and the wicked refuse to repent, choosing instead to be laughed at for their foolishness. What type of people fit this description in our day and age? Who warrants this type of treatment from God? For clarity's sake, I think we might as well Give a few examples. Those who prey upon the elderly, stealing their money with elaborate schemes, God is going to break them down forever. I recently read of an actor who said that anybody who disagrees with the new sexual ethic is an idiot who will die off like the dinosaurs. And unless that gentleman repents and trust in Christ, he can expect to be broken down forever for his hatred and his slander of God's people. Those who pose as Christian ministers only so that they can worm themselves into the confidences of women and children and exploit them for unholy purposes, their damnation is just. Those who heartily approve murdering the innocent they themselves will be uprooted from the land of the living. We could go on and on, but we only need to read a passage like Romans 1, and we can see who fits this description. They, not, they are not only those who practice evil, but they also give hearty approval to those who commit shameless acts. These are people who call evil good. And our text teaches us this evening that our response as Christians to all of this is not some sort of self-righteous taunting. It is rather a plea for them to repent because the wrath of God is coming. What is it that gives us the right to think and speak like this? Have we just put ourselves on some sort of a pedestal over the wicked? What gave David the right to say that Doeg would be destroyed forever? Who was David and who are we to speak these words of judgment? Aren't we all sinners just like Doeg? That leads us to the third section of this passage this evening, verses 8 and 9. The hope of the righteous. The hope of the righteous. To the question, what gives us the right to think and speak like this about those who oppose God? What right do we as sinners have to rejoice over the destruction of another sinner like Doeg? To those questions we answer, we have that right because we are planted in the house of God and our hope springs eternal. Everybody in the world is a sinner. But there's a qualitative difference between a sinner who has been planted in God's house and a sinner who finds refuge in their sin. Qualitative difference. Reminds me of the old 1960, I guess it was the 65 uh, movie uh, where Charlton Heston plays John the Baptist, right? And he's, he's playing up John the Baptist and all these people are coming and they're repenting and then the Pharisees come up and the the interpretation of that is, is he starts blasting at the Pharisees, right? He starts telling them, you know, what are you doing here? Like, like stop trying to interfere with all the decent sinners who have come here to repent, because I know you don't want to repent. There's a qualitative difference between a sinner who has been planted in God's house and a sinner who finds refuge in their sin. For instance, 
I committed a sin not long ago where I spoke, shall we say, intemperately to a co-worker. Now, it was mitigated by the fact that we happen to speak to one another in that way from time to time, and we always finish the conversation in a good place. Nevertheless, I believe the Lord was grieved, and I detested that sin, and I asked the Lord for forgiveness. But I will tell you that since I have come to know Jesus Christ, I commit that sin far less than I used to. And that sin is not put to my account because I have been planted in God's house. There's a difference between a Christian who struggles and fights against sin while still growing in holiness and a non-Christian who rejoices and revels in sin, a person who tries to destroy righteousness. The righteous in the Psalms are not those who have sinless perfection. When you read through the Psalms, sometimes it'll blow your mind. You're reading through the Psalms, and he'll say, Oh, Lord, I'm such a sinner, I'm such a sinner, but I'm righteous. What's what's going on here? For the psalmist, the psalmist, the righteous is not a person who has sinless perfection. Rather, the righteous are those who are seeking and they're trusting in God despite their bodily, bodily inclinations to sin. They see themselves growing in holiness. They know they're not perfect, but they know they're not what they used to be. But the wicked are those who run after sin and call evil good. What gives us the right to say and pray the words of verses 5 through 7? It is that God in Christ Jesus has planted us into his house. The wicked man plants himself in a house of his own making and he gets uprooted forever. But the righteous man, by God's everlasting steadfast love, is planted by God in God's own house and he is secure and he dwells in it forever but i am like a green olive tree in the house of god this is this is not a self-righteous statement it's a statement of hope and trust in god's covenant love we have hope that the wicked who harass us today will be swept away because god in christ jesus has given us his covenant love in the gospel and the second half of verse 8 and all of verse 9 demonstrates the fruit of being planted in god's house when you and i are planted in god's house as strong unmovable olive trees what happens we trust in god's love forever we thank him forever because of what he has done and we have the patience to wait for god to act against the wicked in his own good time don't take your own vengeance on the wicked don't respond to them in kind our lord says vengeance is mine i will repay These are all the fruits produced within us because God has planted us in his house forever. And here's where our hope plays into this picture. David calls himself a green olive tree in the house of God. But what and where is that house as David writes this psalm? What house is he talking about? It's a tent. It's a tabernacle at Nob. And David has just been run out of town away from the presence of God in the tent. He's on the run after Doeg's massacre. So how can David say that he is an olive tree planted in God's house even while he's on the run away from Doeg? How can he say God has done it? Done what? God hasn't destroyed any of David's enemies yet. 
So how can he speak of this as something being already done? And here's the answer. For David, God's covenant, steadfast, everlasting love is so sure that even promises from God, which David has not yet seen fulfilled in his own life, they're already as good as done. David's hope, the hope of all righteous people, It's so sure that even when God has made promises which have not yet been fully realized, righteous people consider them as already done. Isn't that how the Apostle Paul speaks? What does he say? What does he say about what we read in Ephesians? He says that in God's eternal covenant, steadfast love, he predestined us to be adopted, to be adopted, to be brought into his house As his covenant children, he says in chapter 2 that we were made alive together with Christ, that we have been raised up with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It's as good as done. We're no longer strangers and aliens, but members of the household of God. But we have not yet inherited the full reality of these promises yet, have we? No, but they're as good as done. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. God has done it. In Christ's redemptive cross work and his resurrection and his ascension, we have been planted as strong trees which can never be moved from the house of God. What can the wicked do to us? No, 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 no. You can't thwart God's promises by opposing him in wickedness. He will save his people from their enemies, and they will thank him forever because he has done it. I love what Moses says to Israel when he's getting ready to part the Red Sea. Here come the Egyptians. What are they doing? They're barreling in on God's people. They have nowhere to turn. They have no ability in their own strength to fight against their enemies. And what does Moses say? Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today you will never see again. Brothers and sisters, be of good courage in this wicked age. And do not give in to anger. Do not give in to hopelessness. God has done it. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that you are so powerful that you can write uh, words through people that are over 3,000 years old and yet they're still relevant even in our contemporary context today. We pray that we would be people who trust that you are going to vindicate us as your people we pray for unbelievers father that they would come and that they would repent but for those who don't repent father and who continue to persist in their wickedness we pray that you would come and that you would vindicate us as your people we thank you for these great promises that we have we're thankful that you were so gracious to redeem us as wicked people and to give us your Son, Jesus Christ, and to unite us to him, and in whom we have righteousness. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.